All right, well, good afternoon. It's, it's been nice to be back in Loma Linda today. And um, I enjoyed being part of the service this morning, and I pray that was a blessing for all of us. And I'm looking forward to this afternoon's presentation, although it's a little bit different. Um, before we start, I would like to offer a word of prayer and we will get into the presentation. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I just pray that you would be with us now as we get into this topic. I pray that you would help things to be clear and that we would understand what your message really is for our time and that we would be strengthened to go forth to give that message. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so as I said this morning, we are going to be doing an evaluation of the 2520. How many of you have not heard about the 2520? Raise your hands if you haven't. Okay, and that, so how many of you have heard about the 2520? Most of you, okay, so that's helpful for me to understand. If you haven't heard, that's okay, because what I'm going to do, I'm going to go through the arguments that those who believe in the 2520 make, and that's how we're going to start. Then we're going to go through where, where we will see what inspiration really says, and we'll conclude by talking about what the message is for our time. Now, let me just preface my comments by saying that I know people and have friends who believe in the 2520, so this is not a personal attack or anything like that. This is simply an evaluation of the message that they are teaching. And I will say that in my time here in Loma Linda, that I was here for nearly 10 years, I ran into this issue before I moved away. I was in Trinidad for two years and it became an issue there. And in Tennessee where I live now, at my church it's not an issue, but there are people in the surrounding area who believe it. So this, this issue is everywhere. I also understand that Mark Finley recently addressed this issue at GYC Europe just a couple of months ago because it's become a huge issue in Europe because Europe has been suppressed from present truth for a long time so they bring in all kinds of speakers and it seems like a lot of the speakers they have been bringing in over there advocate the 2520. So we are going to get into it now and I regret that I wasn't able to do um, PowerPoint but I don't have internet at home and so that makes it impossible to download pictures and things like that, but we'll just go ahead. So what is the 2520? Well, how many of you are familiar with the 1843 chart of the Millerites? Okay, so William Miller and his associates created a chart, and it was actually Charles Fitch, I believe, who helped to put that chart together. And the Millerite preachers were all united in preaching the, the content that was on that chart. And at the very top right-hand corner of the chart, even more prominent than the 2300 days, was the 2520 prophecy. So let me read to you a quote, and this is 
really like one of the main quotes that 2520 advocates use. And, and I will say also, what I'm going to present in no way encompasses everything that they teach, but it, it's the high points and it will give you an idea of what they're saying. So let's, this is a quote from Early Writings, page 74. This is by Ellen Wyatt. Here she says, I have seen that the 1843 chart was directed by the hand of the Lord and that it should not be altered that the figures were as he wanted them, that his hand was over and hit a mistake in some of the figures so that none could see it until his hand was removed. So first argument, 1843 chart, it's directed by the hand of the Lord and it should not be altered. The figures are the way God wanted them. Don't mess with the 1843 chart. And I might add the 1843 chart is a powerful composite of, of truth for especially the time that it was given. So that's where they start, and they're saying, okay, well, if the 2520 is at the top right-hand corner of the chart, and those figures are supposed to be on the chart, then the 2520 is truth from God. That's the first thing that they'll say. Where do they get this 2520 prophecy? Well, it was actually taught by William Miller, and this is true. William Miller taught the 2520 prophecy. Where did he get the 2520 prophecy from? He got it from the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 26. And there are four passages in Leviticus that refer to what are known as the seven times. And I'll read starting Leviticus 26 verse 18. And God is giving a warning to the children of Israel. And in verse 18 of Leviticus 26, if you will not yet for all of this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. And he goes on, and um, if you go back to verse 15, he's saying, if you break my covenant, this is the punishment. I will pass over you seven times more. And then he says the same thing three more times. In verse 21, verses 23 and 24 and 27 and 28, I'm not going to read those for the sake of time. So let's just start off and hopefully you all will be able to see the whiteboard here. So seven times. Well, this is some, and this is the math that William Miller used. We know that in Daniel 7.25 you have the three and a half times, right? How, how long is that in Bible prophecy? 1260. Well, seven times is double three and a half. So seven times equals 2520. And so William Miller taught and believed that because God's people were disobedient, there was a 2520 year prophecy where God passed over his people for breaking the covenant. That's what William Miller taught. Now, this. Um, 2520 prophecies also on the 1850 chart, which was after 1844. And the early Adventist believers asked the pioneer Hiram Edson. You've heard of Hiram Edson? He's the one who saw Jesus entering into the most holy place the day after the disappointment. And Hiram Edson was asked to study the 2520. And he looked at it as well. Now, before I say what he said, what William Miller did, he looked at this and he came up, 
if you look at what William Miller did, he, he found a variety of ways to get to 1843, and with the exception of the 1335, any prophecy that started before AD, they messed up by one year, and they should have ended in 1844. But anyway, so William Miller took the seven times, and he says, well, if you look in the year 677 BC, Manasseh was taken captive by the Assyrians. And so he goes 2,000, 520 years later to 1843, and I'm going to put 1844 because that's actually the correct calculation. If you go 25, 20 years from 67, it's really 1844. So that was what William Miller did. Now Hiram Edson came along after 1844, studied the issue, and he said, I don't agree with, um, with William Miller. I think he got the wrong starting point. Hiram Edson said, I look at this, and I look at the history of the northern kingdom, because Manasseh was the king of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. There's two divisions of Israel. There's the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. There's the southern kingdom, or the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And Hiram Edson says, in 723, that was when Samaria, or the northern kingdom, was scattered. I believe the 2520 starts then, so he starts at... Uh, 46 years before, and he says, I think it ends in 1798. And so Hiram Edson wrote an article in the Review and Herald saying, I think it goes from 723 to 1798. William Miller had taught it went from 677 to 1844. And then you have the modern day teachers who came back along and they said, that quote from early writings is really interesting. Eight, the, the, this chart was directed by the hand of the Lord. It should not be altered. The figures were as he wanted them. So the 2520 is from God, and they say, wait a minute. William Miller was on to something, and Hiram Edson was on to something. You have two 2520 periods. One is for the, the northern kingdom breaking the covenant with God. One is for the southern kingdom breaking the covenant with God. One takes you from 723 to 1798. The other takes you from 677 to 1844. So then you have to ask, okay, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because 1798 and 1844 are significant prophetic dates in Adventism. 1798 is the termination of the 1260 and the 1290. You have two prophecies that get you to 1798 just from the book of Daniel. And then 1844 is, of course, the 2300-day prophecy. And so now you have this 2520, let me put it here, you have this 2520 prophecy that creates two new ways, one to 1798 and one to 1844. And now this is where things become interesting because <clears throat> this is where the methodology of biblical interpretation starts to become very challenging in my estimation. Let me take you to Isaiah 28 verses 9 through 13. And th these are the arguments that they make. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 through 13. And this is a passage that we know. Isaiah 28, verses 9 through 13. Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. Notice verse 10. 
For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. Now, let me say this. They make a very big deal about line upon line. Now, what, as Seventh-day Adventists, what have we always understood line upon line to mean? It means you take a line of scripture from one passage in context, you compare another line of scripture from another passage of scripture in context, and you see how they harmonize together. A simple example would be Daniel and Revelation. In Daniel chapter 12, we studied this in Sabbath school this morning. In Daniel 12 verse 7, you have an, a heavenly being who raises both hands to heaven. He swears by himself, and he says that there should be time no longer. Then you go to Revelation chapter 10, you see a mighty angel who raises his hand to heaven. He swears by himself and says that there should be time no longer. And actually, sorry, Daniel 12, he says that it's 1260 years and then it will be the time of the end. Revelation 10, time no longer. I mixed that up initially. So you have line upon line, the line of scripture from Daniel 12, the line of scripture from Revelation 10. In context, they go together. And then, but, but, and then I'll get back to what they say about line upon line. Then if you skip down to verse 12, they say, To whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Now they say the refreshing represents the outpouring of a latter rain. So if you learn how to study the Bible line upon line, you will receive the outpouring of the latter rain. Now, what do they mean when they say line upon line? Well, let me tell you. This is a line, and this is a line. You have the line from 723 to 1798. You have the line from 677 to 1844 line upon line. Now, am I the only one that sees that as a strange way to interpret that verse? Okay. Now, they have a verse, though, to support that idea. And it's in 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 10 through 16. And you may wonder, how do I know all this stuff? Um, when I was in Trinidad, um, well, I, I better be careful how I say this, but I had some time, and um, I took it upon myself to listen to hours of presentations by people who advocate these positions. I've heard presentations in person and, and by tape or online, so I've spent several, many hours dealing with this, and I'm going to give you some resources that you can go to at the end of the presentation. Now, let me show you this verse, 2 Kings 21, 10 to 16. And the Lord spake by his servants the prophet, saying, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, hath done these abominations, and hath done wickedly above all that the Amorites did which were before him, and hath made Judah also to sin with his idols, therefore thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such evil upon Jerusalem and Judah, that whosoever heareth of it, both his ears shall tingle. So this is when Manasseh is taken captive in 677 B.C. Notice the next verse. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, what? The line of Samaria. So here's what they say. See? 677 BC, Manasseh gets punished. You already have a line on Samaria, which is the northern kingdom, which started in 723. And now, here in 2 Kings, God is saying, this line that's already on Samaria, it's going to stretch over 
Jerusalem now. Again, do you see that as a strange way to interpret scripture? To say that you have a line that goes all the way from 1723 to 1798, and now this line, that's what 2 Kings is talking about when he says, I'm stretching a line over the southern kingdom. So that becomes an interesting point. And the word for line is a ruler, like, like a measuring stick. Um, it's not um, a line of time, so to speak, for 2,520 years. It's, it's a measuring stick where God measures you to say, have you fallen short? And obviously Jerusalem committed the same idolatry that the nor northern kingdom committed. So that's, that's their verse of scripture that they say, see, it's line upon line. And when you understand line upon line, this brings the refreshing of the latter rain. So, and I'm not making this up. This is what they say. Um, then they go to a quote from Second Selective Messages, page 114, which they say supports this idea. This is Second Selective Messages, page 114. Prophecy has been fulfilling line upon line. The more firmly we stand under the banner of the third angel's message, the more clearly shall we understand the prophecy of Daniel, for the revelation is the supplement of Daniel. And she goes on. So she's saying line upon line is the fulfillment of prophecy in Daniel and Revelation. They use this statement to support the idea that prophecy has been fulfilling line upon line, and part of that application, they don't say this is the only application to this quote, is that you have the northern kingdom of Samaria's line from 1723 to 1798 that's being fulfilled, and it's upon the line of the southern kingdom of Judah from 677 to 1844, line upon line. So these are statements from scripture and, and, this, and the spirit of prophecy that they use to support this idea. And then they take it a little further because you may be wondering, okay, well, whatever. I mean, you have these two prophecies that get you to 1798 and 1844. And okay, they're saying something about the latter rain. Well, let's keep developing what they say about the importance of these prophecies. Because if, if this was just some kind of scattered idea that um, just said this is an interesting idea, I probably wouldn't be talking about this. But you're going to see why we are addressing this today. Continuing on, in at the end of Leviticus 26, which is from the same passage where the seven times are talked about, in verses 40 to 44, God tells Israel that they will have restoration if they come back to the covenant that they broke. And so, at the end of Leviticus 26, those who teach the idea of the 2520 are saying, see, after the 2,520 years are fulfilled, there is going to be a restoration. God is going to renew a covenant with his people. Specifically, verse 42, God says, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Israel and also my covenant with Abraham will I remember and I will remember the land. So God is saying, they say that God is saying, after these 2,520 years, the covenant will be restored. 
So the 2520 isn't, aren't just time prophecies, they're prophecies that point to the restoration of the covenant. And in Deuteronomy chapter 28, in that chapter, you have promises from God, blessings if you follow my covenant, curses if you break my covenant. How many of you have studied Deuteronomy 28? Okay, and in the prophecy of Deuteronomy 28, there's this prophecy in verses 50 to 52 of a king of fierce countenance uttering dark sentences. He will come, he will besiege your city, you will eat your children. That's a prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem. And the people who teach the 2520, they go to a verse in Daniel chapter 9, verse 11, in Daniel's prayer, where Daniel is praying to God and he says that, well, let me just read it. Daniel chapter 9 verse 11. And this Daniel, he's seen this prophecy of the 2300 days and he's thinking, and then he sees this king of fierce countenance at the end of Daniel 8 and he's thinking, oh no, our captivity is going to be extended. We've broken the covenant. And in verse 11 of Daniel 9, Daniel says, yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law even by departing that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. So what the 2520 advocates say is, see, here Daniel is sometime after 605 BC. This would have been, and I don't have the exact date, but Daniel 9 would have been um, several years into his captivity, and the captivity started in 605. So sometime here, Daniel is saying, see, the curse from the law of Moses is poured upon us. We're under the curse of the 2520. Now, I'll answer to that later. Now, let's continue here. There's a few other key points. Um, as I was saying, the 2520 is God's curse poured upon the northern and the southern kingdoms for their breaking of the covenant, but the promise is at the end the covenant will be restored. And here's one of the verses that they use. They go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And here the verse reads, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, here is what they do with this verse. What's, first of all, what's the standard Adventist understanding of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1? The Lord shall appear suddenly in his temple. You know what Ellen White says about this verse? This is when Jesus suddenly appeared in the most holy place in 1844, and the world wasn't expecting him to show up there. He appeared suddenly in his temple. That's 1844, and there's agreement on that point. Now, here's the point. Jesus is described as the messenger of the covenant. He appears suddenly. So here's what they say. The end of the 2520, we've seen from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that the covenant was broken, but it's going to be restored at the end of the 2520. So in 1844, when Jesus entered into the most holy place, 
Malachi 3 is talking really about the 2520, not the 2300 days, because the 2520 points to the restoration of the covenant, and Jesus is the messenger of the covenant, and he appears suddenly in the temple. So Malachi 3 is really talking about Jesus confirming not only the covenant, but he's confirming the validity of the 2520. Now, what's the significance of that? Well, then they say, here's what you do with the two, the two periods. They say, between 1798 and 1844, the scattering of God's people ends. So after 1798, gathering of God's people begins. And they say specifically that the top line to 1798 is more of a representation of scattering and the bottom line is more of a representation of gathering. And getting to the end of the 2520 gets you to the restoration of the covenant in 1844. And of course, we believe as Seventh-day Adventists that when Jesus went to the most holy place, Revelation 11:19 shows us that the ark of the, or that the temple of God was open in heaven and there was seen the ark of his covenant or the ark of the testimony and so that's where the law of god is and so in 1844 that's when the covenant of god the new covenant could finally be restored but they say the 2520 connects that um, and they specifically say to enter into covenant with god after 1844 and to receive the seal of god you must accept the truth of the 2520 because the 2520 is what helps you to understand that the covenant needs to be restored so that you can receive the seal of God. Now, to me, it's a huge leap in logic, but they definitely feel strongly about that. And so they have now made the 2520 a testing truth because they're saying 1844 is when God renews his covenant with spiritual Israel and in order for him to renew his covenant with you, you have to understand that there were 2,520 years where God's people were scattered for breaking his covenant. 1844 now, he's renewing the covenant, and he confirmed that he was renewing the covenant by suddenly appearing in his temple as the messenger of the covenant, and you have to understand the 2520. So that's one of the things that they say. Now, let me just mention a few other examples of places that they mention the 2520. And I'm almost done presenting their main arguments, and I don't want to spend any more time on this than I have to, to be honest with you. Um, Daniel chapter 4. How many times was Nebuchadnezzar passed over? Seven times. And just as seven times were mentioned in Leviticus chapter 26... They're men, uh, the seven times are mentioned four times in Leviticus 26. Seven times are also mentioned with respect to Nebuchadnezzar's punishment of seven times, four times as well. And then, this is the one that is perhaps the most interesting one to me. Daniel chapter 5. We know the story of Daniel chapter 5. We've heard this since we were children. Belshazzar's having a party, everybody gets drunk, and then the hand writes on the wall, meeny, meeny, tekel, you farson. And those who teach the 2520 say, did you realize that the 2520 is in that message? How many of you have heard that meeny, meeny, tekel, you farson equals 2520? Okay, not many of you. Here's how they do it. Meeny, meeny. Okay. In shekels, 
Mini is 50 shekels. Tekel is one shekel. Eupharzin is the dividing of Mini. That would then be, so it's half of Mini, so it's 25. This then, 126. So this is 126 shekels. Now let me give you the verse, just so you know that I'm not making this up. Um, Ezekiel chapter 45, verse 12 tells us that one shekel equals 20 giras. Well, it just so happens that, and this is all money and, you know, dollar cents, whatever. One shekel equals 20 giras. Now, gira is spelled G-E-R-A-H. 126 times 20, you guessed it, equals 2520. What's the significance of that? Daniel chapter 5 is a type of the fall of Babylon. Daniel 5, Babylon is fallen. The loud cry of Revelation 18, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Therefore, encrypted in the message of Daniel chapter 5, it shows that the 2520 is part of the loud cry message. And if you're going to give the loud cry of Revelation 18, where the earth is lightened with the glory of God, you must accept the 2520 as gospel truth. So here we have, let me just reinforce what they're teaching. They're teaching from Isaiah 28, line upon line brings refreshing or the latter rain, and the line upon line is drawing the two lines of the 2520 on top of each other. And not only that, because mini mini tikal yufarzin in shekels and giras adds up to 2520, and since Daniel 5 prefigures the loud cry of Babylon being fallen in Revelation 18, the 2520 is part of the latter rain, it's part of the loud cry, therefore if it's part of the latter rain and the loud cry, clearly you need to accept it to receive the seal of God in order to stand on the day of God. So this is why I'm addressing this topic, because there are well-meaning, sincere people who when they hear this presented, they're like, man, I have never heard anything like this before. And they're using the Bible and the spirit of prophecy, and our church is asleep, and these people seem to be really sincere, and they want Jesus to come, and they really know how to bring different Bible verses from all over the Bible that I've never heard of before into a cohesive package that's just amazing. And this is the loud cry. We need to teach the 2520 so that people will be ready for Jesus to come. Now... There's a few other points. Anytime you see the number seven in the Bible, think 2520. Let me give you some examples. In Egypt, there were seven years of feast and seven years of famine. The seven years of famine rep represent the top line of the scattering. The seven years of feast represent the bottom line of the gathering. Naaman washed in the Jordan River seven times. The seven times he washed represent the scattering, and when he came out after seven times, he had new flesh, he had a new heart. In Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14, blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat seven times on the Day of Atonement. Thus, the Day of Atonement is connected to the 2520. And this is the best one I've heard yet. And 
just to be clear, and I haven't used their names yet, but this is public, this is not a secret. The main teachers for the 2520 are Jeff Pippinger and Dario Taylor, and there's a few other guys as well. Um, I don't know if they take it this far. I have not heard them say this. This is something I saw on the internet by an individual, but I'm just showing you the same line of reasoning and logic has brought an individual to come to this point, which is this. The Sabbath is on what day of the week? Seventh day. The Sabbath is a sign of the 2520. And this guy says, happy Sabbath, or happy 2520. And I'm just showing you that this is what happens when you study the Bible in such a haphazard manner. You, you, you say, oh, line upon line means drawing a line on a board and saying it's this line on top of this line, when if you look at the original language, it re represents a ruler that is a measurement of where God's people are spiritually. And it, it's really doing violence to the interpretation of scripture that God would encrypt the loud cry message and meeny meeny tickle you farsen so that we would understand that the 2520 is part of the loud cry of the latter rain. Um, let me read to you two other quotes that they use to try to reinforce their point and then we're going to get into the refutation of this idea. This is from Manuscript Releases, volume 15, page 317, and they try to use Ellen White to support their ideas. And here she says, temptations are being brought in by men who have been long in the truth. The truths that we received in 1841, 42, 43, and 44 are now to be studied and proclaimed. The messages of the first, second, and third angels will, be, will in the future be proclaimed with a loud voice. They will be given with earnest determination and in the power of the Spirit. So notice this. She says the truth that we received in 41, 42, 43, 44, that is to be proclaimed in the power of the Spirit. And they're saying the 2520 was one of the truths during that time. So we've got to hold on to that. See, Ellen White was sustaining the 2520. And that's, you know, that's, that's the last quote I'll read from them. Let me make one other point, and this was made by one speaker in particular, um, and this is a public presentation. Well, I, I'm not going to mention his name, but anyway, it, it was one of the 2520 speakers, and he made the point, isn't it interesting that when you look at the seven times in Leviticus chapter 26, God renews his covenant with, the, with God's people in verses 40 to 44, and in Daniel 11, the most momentous verses of that prophecy are found in verses 40 to 45, which the numbers 40 to 44 are in. And isn't it interesting that the Millerite movement rose up in history, especially in 1840 to 44? That's how they study the Bible. 40 to 44. 1840 to 44, Daniel 11, 40 to 44, Leviticus 26, 40 to 44, and somehow the 2520 is connected to all of that. And then I've also heard one of the other speakers in that movement say, isn't it interesting that Islam is talked about in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, and Islam attacked America on 9-11, and that kind of thing. So that's how they study the Bible. And, um, okay. Let's go to what the Bible and the spirit of prophecy really say. First point. In all of her voluminous writings of 
thousands upon thousands and 10,000 of pages, Ellen White never once uses the 25, 20, or the seven times by name, not once. It's not there. You have to, at best, find it by inference, but it's not there directly. So if this is a testing sealing truth for the last generation, why does God's last day prophet never mention it by name? And it's the same line of reasoning with feast keeping. You've heard people say that you need to keep a feast or the lunar Sabbath or this or that to receive the seal of God. Again, Ellen White never mentions those as testing truths. Let's read that quote again from Ellen White because it seems pretty convincing that, you know, the 1843 chart was directed by the hand of the Lord. Let's read that. I have seen that the 1843 chart was directed by the hand of the Lord and that it should not be altered, that the figures were as he wanted them, that his hand was over and hid a mistake in some of the figures so that none could see it until his hand was removed. Wow, so that 1843 chart, it has the 2520 on it. It should not be altered. So Norman, you've been making this presentation. How can you say that the 2520 is not true when Ellen White says that the figures on that chart should not be altered? How could you attack that? Well, it just so happens that Ellen White makes a corresponding statement about this chart in Spalding and McGann Collection, page one, paragraph three. Notice what she says. I saw that the truth should be made plain upon tables, that the earth and the fullness thereof is the Lord's, and that necessary means should not be spared to make it plain. Now here she goes. I saw that the old chart was directed by the Lord and that not a figure of it should be altered. So far it sounds the same, right? But notice the very next phrase. Except by inspiration. So Ellen White says, not a figure of it should be altered except by inspiration. So that means if there are figures on the 1843 chart that go against inspiration, then it should be altered, right? So here's the thing. The, the 2520 movement has in essence canonized the 1840 and the 1850 chart, 1843 and 1850 charts. They're saying you can't touch it. That is divinely inspired. It has the stamp of approval from Ellen White, yet she has a, a corresponding statement that says it can be altered if it's in conflict with inspiration. So that's a key point. So is there a quote from inspiration that counters the 2520? You better believe it. Great Controversy, page 351. And this is a very important point. The experience of the disciples who preached the gospel of the kingdom at the first advent of Christ had its counterpart in the experience of those who proclaimed the message of his second advent. As the disciples went out preaching, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So Miller and his associates proclaimed that the longest and last prophetic period brought to view in the Bible was about to expire, that the judgment was at hand and the everlasting kingdom was to be ushered in. So now Ellen White has said, okay, the disciples taught that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and Miller and his associates, they taught the same thing based on the longest and last prophetic period. Now, what is that? She continues. The preaching of the disciples in regard to time was based on the 70 weeks of Daniel 9. The message given by Miller and his associates announced the termination of the 2300 days of Daniel 8:14, of which the 70 weeks form a part. The preaching of each was based upon the fulfillment of a different portion of the same great prophetic period. Okay, 
What did Ellen White just say here? She said that you have the disciples and you have the Millerites. The disciples preached the kingdom of heaven was at hand based on the 70 weeks. The Millerites preached it based on the termination of the longest and last prophetic period in the Bible. And what prophecy does she refer to? 2,300 days. Now, let me put two figures side by side, and I'll ask you to tell me what you think. Which of those two numbers is larger or longer? 2,300 or 2,520? 2520. Well, Ellen White said that the 2300 days is the longest and last prophetic period. So guess what just got ruled out as a legitimate time prophecy? 2520 is gone. All of that artful ideology of line upon line, covenant restored, Meeny, meeny, tickle, you farson, seventh day of the week. That's all a bunch of rubbish. It has no founding in the solid word of God. And it's sad to me that seventh day Adventists who should know their Bibles are getting swept away by these ideas that have nothing to do with our message and mission. And let me... Now, I'll tell you, the, the, the people who teach the 2520 are very well aware of this quote in Great Controversy. This is how they try to respond to it. This is what they say. Well, if you read the quote carefully, she says that the 2300 days and the 70 weeks were each part or a different portion of the same great prophetic period. So here's what they do. They say you have 70 weeks, you have... 2300 days and those are overarched by the 2520 because the 2520 starts before the 2300 days and the 70 weeks and so the 70 weeks that's one part the 2300 days is another part and the 2520 is the longest and last period that is the great prophetic period that these two are part of now does that make sense to you that's what they say but let me say that again so they say that because Ellen White says the preaching of each, the 70 weeks and the 2300 days, was based upon the fulfillment of a different portion of the same great prophetic period. Now, anybody who understands Adventist prophecy would say, well, sure, yeah, the 70 weeks and the 2300 days are part of the same prophecy. They say, no, it's the great prophetic period of the 2520, where 70 weeks is one part, the 2300 days is another part, and the 2520 is the overarching period. But there's a flaw in that line of reasoning, and let me show you why. <clears throat> when you look at the 2300 days, and let me create some space here. When you look at the 2300 day prophecy, 457 BC to 1844, we gain the starting point for the 457 based on Daniel 9, which says 70 weeks are determined upon my people. And what does the, de the word determined mean in the Hebrew? It means cut off. 
And that's a key point. That's a biblical term. And why is that a key point? Because that means the 70 weeks are cut off or are a separate portion from the rest of the 1810 years, which is the second portion of the same great prophetic period of the 2300 days. So the disciples were saying, hey, the 70 weeks are finished. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the Millerites were teaching, hey, not only are the 70 weeks finished now, now we're coming to the end of the second portion of the 2300 days, and 1844 is about to happen. And so what Ellen White is saying is this. Miller and his associates preached the longest and last prophetic period, the 2300 days, which was a separate portion from the 70 weeks, which was cut off from it. Does that make sense? 70 weeks is cut off from the 2300 days. That gives you, if, it, if, it's, if the 70 weeks are cut off, by definition, that gives you two portions. You have 490 years, you have 1810 years. Does that make sense? And the Pippingerites, the 2520 advocates, they try to do mental gymnastics over this quote and say, oh no, that's really still referring to the 2520, yet Ellen White doesn't mention the 2520 by name, yet she clearly mentions the 2300. So that's a significant problem with their teaching as well. Let me you know, continue here. Um, When Daniel said we are now under the curse from the law of Moses in Daniel chapter 9, what God revealed to him when Gabriel showed up and said, 70 weeks are determined upon your people, and then says the Messiah is going to come, and then it talks about the abomination of desolation where God's people will be, um, or the Jewish nation would be destroyed with the destruction of Jerusalem. What Daniel 9 is really teaching us is that the curse from the law of Moses would not be poured out until Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. And that only until the Messiah was rejected would the nation of Israel receive the curse of God. The, the nation of Israel did not receive the curse of God before Jesus the Messiah came. How could Jesus come to the southern kingdom of Judah? And this is one of the best arguments against the 2520. If you're just, if you miss all the other points, this is to me one of the best arguments. How could, because here you have the two lines, northern kingdom 723 to 1798, southern kingdom 677 to 1844, yet Jesus comes well down the line of this so-called curse and he comes to confirm the covenant with many for one week, and he dies on the cross in 31 AD, and only after Stephen was stoned in 34 AD did the nation of Israel seal their doom. And so Jesus comes to a nation that has already received the curse from the law of Moses poured upon it? That makes no sense. Only until Jesus himself came to this earth did the nation of Israel fully receive the pouring out of the curse from the law of Moses. And specifically that curse, it's in Deuteronomy 28, verses 50 through 52, it says, when this curse is poured upon you, you will eat your children. Your city will be sieged by a nation of fierce countenance with a rod of iron. That's when the city of Rome destroyed the children of Israel. So that also refutes this idea of the 2520. And then briefly, and I don't want to spend too much more time on this, Uriah Smith and James White wrote articles refuting 
the 2520. The first one is by Uriah Smith. It's in page 74 of Daniel and the Revelation in the original edition. Unfortunately, the one you would get at the ABC now would not have this. And he shows that the word for times in Leviticus 26 is an adverb from the word Sheba, and it means intensity. And he contrasts that with the word for times in Daniel 4 from the Hebrew word Gidon, which actually refers to a duration. And so there's actually a completely different meaning for the word times in Leviticus 26 and in, in Daniel when the word times is used for time, times, and the dividing of time. And then James White in January 26, 1864, Review and Herald, writes an entire article refuting the 2520 and says it's not a legitimate time prophecy. And so here James White, the husband of Ellen White, writes an article refuting the 2520, and yet somehow we're supposed to believe that Ellen White's writings uphold the 2520 because she says the truths in 1840 through 44 are of God. Yet here's the, another key point. William Miller and his associates and the chart that they presented, when they created that chart, they were not Seventh-day Adventists. They had not yet accepted the third angel's message. They had not yet accepted the Sabbath. More truth was to come. William Miller never accepted the Sabbath. He will be in the kingdom. Yet when you look at what Pippinger and his followers teach, they place almost more of an emphasis on the truths of the early Advent believers before 1844 than some of the pioneers who came along after 1844 and sharpened our message so that we have the Adventist message that we have today with the three angels' messages. And so you have a canonization, if you will, of the Millerite movement, um, including its mistakes. And mind you, I am a firm believer in the Millerite history, and the thing that frustrates me is I love to teach and to study Millerite history, but sometimes I feel like the Pivinger movement has ruined it. Because if you hear the Millerite history talked about now, you're gonna be like, oh no, are they a Pippinger follower? And yet Ellen White in her first vision showed that the experience of the Millerites with the midnight cry which led them to set the date for October 22, 1844 is the light at the pathway that leads the Advent believers from this earth to the heavenly Canaan. And mind you, the midnight cry was not the 2520. The midnight cry was the message that set the date for October 22, 1844. And here's one of the things that's, I, that's happened. They will deny this, but this is what I've observed. The 2300 days has become of less significance and the 2520 has been elevated to of greater significance than the 2300 days. And that is a significant problem. Now let me read you one other thing that they say just to show you how far they've taken their ideas. This, um, well, two things. One is about the charts. This is a parable that was written and I'm getting this from the website weaffirmsda.com and I'll write this, the, the websites down. Here's this parable from a 2520 advocate. And it says, and so the clan represented by foolish faithless continued on their journey towards the promised land. God had lovingly provided two tables laden with all kinds of fruit to nourish them as they went. That's the two charts, the 1843 and the 1850 charts. Each fruit supplied nutrients not found on the others. It was necessary to eat all the fruit to reach their destination and inherit eternal life. The tables of fruit were mentioned by Habakkuk and by Ellen White. So in other words, you have to eat all the fruit to inherit eternal life, which means accept the 2520 or lose heaven. And then notice what they say as well. This is another statement. To say that she, Ellen White, 
doesn't endorse the 2520 is to oppose her prophetic gift, but also you must reject the light that Gabriel revealed to William Miller. And they say that the 1843 chart contained light that Gabriel himself gave to William Miller. And we've never taught that, that Gabriel enlightened William Miller, that it was just the angels of God, not specifically Gabriel, because that's what Ellen White says. She says angels of God, but not necessarily Gabriel. She continues on, or this, no, sorry, this person continues on. Where did Gabriel get his understanding of prophecy from? Jesus Christ and God the Father. So now we must call into question the Father and the Son's knowledge of prophecy. If Miller was wrong about the 2520, then Sister White is a false prophet, Gabriel is an angel from the bottomless pit, and God the Father and God the Son are false gods. Let me read that last part again. If Miller was wrong about the 2520, then Sister White is a false prophet. Gabriel is an angel from the bottomless pit, and God the Father and God the Son are false gods. You know, there's one word to describe this movement. Fanaticism. This is where fanaticism leads you. It leads you to say, if you reject the 2520, Ellen White's a false prophet, Gabriel's the angel from the bottomless pit, and God the Father and God the Son are false gods. All over the 2520. That's not even a legitimate time prophecy. When Ellen White says that the 2300 days is clearly the longest and last prophetic period in Scripture. This just shows us that Satan is doing everything he can to distract us from the message that he has given us for this time. And what is that message? You know, the, the, the two tables or the charts, the 1843 chart, it was prophesied in scripture and it is found in Habakkuk chapter two. And let's read that verse and let's see what the message really is. And this is the part that I'd rather talk about all day long, but we do need to be aware of some of the heresies that have come into our church. What is the message for our time? Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, it says, And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables, that he may run that readeth it. And Ellen White does say the 1843 chart was a fulfillment of this verse. They wrote the vision of the 2300 days, and they made it plain on tables, so that the messengers could run with it and go from place to place and teach this message. And continuing, For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but the end it shall speak and not lie, though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. This is speaking about the tarrying time between the spring of 1844 and the autumn of 1844, where there was the early disappointment, and the Millerites were trying to figure out what went wrong with their understanding of the 2300 days. And Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3, and Ellen White says this is true, shows that there would be a tarrying time, but that the fulfillment of the vision would come. Now notice, verse 4 connects a very key part to this message. And notice what it says, behold, his soul will which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Now, what is that talking about? All of a sudden, we 
transition from the, the tables of the 1843-44 message and the tarrying time that led up to 1844. And then in verse 4, it says, the just shall live by his faith. Or in other words, connected to the movement of 1844, where God would raise up an Advent movement who would proclaim the coming of Jesus based on the messages of, of the two tables, there would also be a message that the just shall live by faith. And the just shall live by faith just so happens to be the third angel's message. Let me read, remind you what Ellen White says of this message. Review and Herald, April 1, 1890. Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. And then here's the part that we don't often read. The prophet declares, and after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. Brightness, glory, and power are to be connected with the third angel's message and conviction will follow wherever it is preached in the demonstration of the spirit. And I'll tell you this, the message that will bring the loud cry uh, under the power of the latter reign of Revelation 18.1 that lightens the earth with the glory of God, it's not the 25.20. And it's not some of the other things that they teach in the Piffinger movement. It's not Islam striking America on 9.11. It's not some of these other ideas of foolishness that they're teaching, the message that will bring the loud cry of Revelation 18 is the experience of justification by faith. That is the third angel's message in verity. The message of righteousness by faith. And when you study the message of justification by faith, the just shall live by faith. It's connected to the power of the gospel. And I've mentioned this in previous presentations, so I'm just going to kind of run through this. But the word for just in the Greek is the Greek word dikaios, which is the very same word used to describe Jesus Christ in the life that he lived here on this earth. Stephen, as he was about to be stoned, said, you denied the holy one and the just. Peter said, he was the holy one and the just. Pilate's wife even said, have nothing to do with this just man. It's the same word, the just shall live by faith. And Habakkuk chapter 2 is speaking of a time prophetically where God would raise up a movement that would understand the termination of the 2300-day prophecy and they would be ushered in after 1844 into the experience of the third angel's message. And the reason why the message of justification by faith or the just shall live by faith is the third angel's message is because those who are just have Christ's righteousness not merely on the outside but they live his just life and when God's people live the just life of Christ then the earth will be lightened with the glory of God because we will then be a demonstration of the character of Jesus that's our message and what happens is Seventh-day Adventists for years have been waiting for Jesus to come and we either have refused to accept this message which came to this church in great power in 1888 and it was rejected or we have simply decided to 
set aside spiritual things and get into a Laodicean state of being. And so Jesus has not been able to come. And then the devil works through what I would call the right-wing element of the church who are well-meaning. They seem to be, wow, they're vegan. They wear skirts all the time. They carry the Bible under their arm all the time, this, that, the other. And if they're teaching that the 2520 is the seal of God, then this must be gospel truth. And yet the truth that will send Adventism into termination, so to speak, in a good way, has nothing to do with the 2520. It has everything to do with the righteousness of Christ, not merely accepting it intellectually, but experiencing it in the heart so that we become transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Amen. And you know what? I would rather spend all of my time talking about that. I hope this is the last time I ever say anything about the 2520 for so long. This message will get up on the internet, it will do its work, and I can just keep on talking about the third angel's message. And by the grace of God, there won't be any more confusion about this very issue. Let me read to you one other quote. And this, to me, shows that the whole Pippinger movement has become a fulfillment of prophecy in a way that they would not want to be. This is from Manuscript Release, Volume 9, page 27. God is raising up a class to give the loud cry of the third angel's message. Of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. It is Satan's object now to, to get up new theories to divert the mind from the true work and genuine message for this time. He stirs up minds to give false interpretation of scripture, a spurious loud cry that the real message may not have its effect when it does come. This is one of the greatest evidences that the loud cry will soon be heard and the earth lightened with the glory of God. You know, in a way we can be thankful that the Pippinger movement is out there because it's one of the greatest evidences that the real loud cry is about to do its work. We don't need any more 2520 nonsense. What we need more is Jesus and his righteousness, and his power. And when we say what we need is Jesus, we really need that. We need his life fully and completely. And I'm looking forward to a time when there aren't, where, where you're not going to have to show up to church and worry about the new converts in the faith who might be preyed upon by people who have false theories to introduce to them. I'm looking forward to a time in heaven, in the kingdom, where we will be able to come and worship God in spirit and in truth, and all of these false theories of rubbish will be washed away. But until that time, we've got to be faithful, we've got to be vigilant, we've got to earnestly contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints. Now is not the time to be swept away by error. This close to the end of the world, now more than ever, we must cling to the truths of Scripture that God has given to the Adventist people. And I can say with full confidence that the 2520 is not part of the last day message. That the last day message for God's church is justification by faith. Not simply a legal declaration, but a heart transformation.
With that, why don't we close with prayer? Father in heaven, thank you that we could finish the afternoon talking about what the third angel's message in verity really is. That the message of justification by faith will produce a group of people, a generation, who will demonstrate the character of Christ in all of its glory so that the earth will be illuminated with the glory, the character of God. Lord, I pray for those who have fallen into false ideas, false concepts that have confused them. I pray that you would use this message, those who may hear the recording, that it would help them to understand that what they have believed has nothing to do with the message and mission of Adventism. May we all come back to that true message of justification by faith as the third angel's message in verity. And may we be part of that closing work where the earth is lightened with the glory of God. And Lord, I pray especially for Advent Hope. I pray that you would protect it from the attacks of Satan, that you would protect it from those who would try to introduce these false theories, and that it would continue to be a shining light presenting truth in this community until Jesus comes. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For further resources on this topic, I would encourage you to go to the website www.weaffirmsda.com. That's weaffirmsda.com. You can also go to www.greatcontroversy.org. That's greatcontroversy.org, where I have written a five-part series um, addressing issues related to the Jeff Pippinger issues, including the claims that the loud cry began on 9-11 and that we are living in the judgment of the living since 9-11 and that the third woe in history began on 9-11. Claims are being made that this is all part of the final message for Adventism and these two websites, weaffirmsda.com and greatcontroversy.org, have several helpful resources that address these issues. Thank you, and may God bless you.